We're in the second week of our Advent season here. We're continuing in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and we'll start in verse 16. Now, you're not going to believe this. I have convinced my wife on this very special day to be the reader of today's Word. Now, Lindsay, why don't you come on up here? What you guys need to do, maybe before you leave, I don't know if it's it, but you got to check out her shirt. It says, dibs on the pastor. (laughs) And during the prayer, I just thought how weird that is in a plurality of elders. (laughs) So, (laughs) why don't you stand to your feet? Open your Bibles and prepare for the reading of God's Word. All right, a reading from John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is God's word for God's people. Glorious Father, righteous King, beloved friend and Savior of us all, we come to you this morning and in the midst of pastoral installation and the government of the church and all of the ceremony of the day and of this specific service, we cast our eyes above that all. They are merely circumstantial in comparison to the great wonder and mystery that you are to all of us. There is no job on earth, there is no title or status that can be larger and more significant than Son of God than daughter of God. And so we just pray today as a collection of your children, singing songs to you, praying to you, reading your word, that you would be glorified this morning by your children. May this be another Sunday where it is a a minor family reunion, as it will, where we get together to sing glory to our God. Would you help us, Lord, through the reading of this text, through the preaching of your word, and through the receiving in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, preparing a sermon is a peculiar business. Especially when you have special events, things going on like what we just had this morning. You're thinking, this is going to be my first sermon or whatever, as it were, as a pastor. What do you want to say? Can you make it really poetic or inspirational? This has to be the best sermon. But you need to trust the Lord as you're preparing. And so this is where the introduction took me. Guys, I got to tell you, I hate wrapping paper. I hate it. I think wrapping paper is the dumbest thing you could imagine. Did you know that Americans spend $12.3 billion a year on trash that covers our presence? We could wrap the world, literally, this is a stat. I had to go to the Google machine and find this stuff out. We could wrap the world nine times with what Americans spend on wrapping paper every Christmas season. 3.2 million pounds of paper garbage are purchased every year and then thrown in the trash. Dumb. Stupid. 
ridiculous. You know why? Because it conceals. It's like sneaky. It tempts you to sin. You want to like creep open the paper to see this is all wrong. This is not glorifying to God. I am a minister of the truth. I don't want to conceal what we're trying to do. I can't stand it. Now let's get to the sermon. My wife, she wants to hide stuff. I think that is an issue we need to counsel her in. I just want to put all the presents under the tree totally exposed and that you would glorify the Lord with gratitude all the more. You just get a look at it and see, I can't believe that that gift is coming. Wouldn't that be better? Probably not. Many of you are going to argue, no, it's the concealing of that gift that when that paper is torn open, there is something revealed and it's good and it's beautiful. Last week in the first Advent uh, part of our series, Pardon me. Aaron discussed chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We discussed the Trinity of God and how that triune picture came into the world. And we, he made this claim here in verse 5. You'll read it in your Bibles here that he came as this, with this light in him. As, a, as we would say it in the Christian tradition, the light of the world came to light up the darkness, and the darkness had to flee. It's a great picture. In fact, he used this illustration, I don't know if you recall it, about being in a really dark cave, so dark he said that he couldn't see his hand right in front of his face, and it was disorienting. And he asked for someone to turn on the light. Today we're going to be talking about what we see when the light is turned on. In other words, if you were in that darkened cave and someone turns on the flashlight, no one is going to stare at the flashlight. You immediately cast the flashlight to the walls to make sure there's not bats hanging above your head. When the light of the world comes to the world, it's not the light that we only see, it's what the light casts upon that reveals to us who we are, what our purpose is, who God is, and how we are saved. I want to do that today. I want to see what the light reveals to us through verses 6 through 13 in three parts. If you're a note taker, here you go. Verses 6 through 8, the light reveals our personal witness. 9 through 11, the light reveals our sinful depravity. And verses 11 through 14, the light reveals our God's character. The light has come from verse 5 to chase away the darkness. And this passage reveals to us, may you say, unwraps to us what is revealed underneath. We'll start in verses 6 through 8. I'll read them for you here. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light and all that might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The light. First thing, maybe to orient ourselves in context here, that we need to see is the masterful writing of John. John, like Aaron said last week, is my favorite gospel to study. It puts me in a in a spiritual, in a in my, puts my mind in a more of a spiritual condition. And you'll see it here. John doesn't even mention the name of Jesus until verse 29. He's considering the cosmos. He's outside of space and outside of time. In the beginning was God, right? There's this great picture. And as we narrow our way down the text, we actually are getting more and more defined inside of space and time. We're seeing characters start to develop. Notice in verse 6, there was a man. His name is John. 
John is not John who wrote this book. It's John, you probably know him as John the Baptist. He's considered to be the last Old Testament prophet, a herald of the Jesus to come. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 11, that John the Baptist is the greatest of man unto this time. Why? Because he literally pointed people to Jesus. He got to see his face. He introduced people to the Messiah and it cost him his life. He was beheaded as we find later on. Now this John's version of the story of John the Baptist, ironically, has no biographical information. It just shares about his ministry. The only thing we know about him at this point is is the second part of verse 6. He was sent from God. He was sent from God. God had a plan, an ordered plan, far before John the Baptist was born. His parents were barren. John, John's father had an angel come and see John and tell him what this baby was going to do. God even or, or designed his name, which means gift of God. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke that when Jesus, or sorry, when Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, approaches Elizabeth, John's mom, and she's pregnant, it says that John the Baptist danced in her womb. There was an awareness of who this God was from the very beginning, but... John all the while knew, though he was special, though he was um, designed by God for a certain purpose, he was still a man. John is the created, heralding the creator. We have to ask the question, though, what was he sent to do? And we find that very clearly in verses 7 and 8. We'll read it here. He came as a witness, notice that word, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. That word witness is mentioned there three times in these short verses. And I want you to understand that the word witness is probably better translated in our context today, the way we would understand it, as testify. This is a testimony. It's a legal term. In other words, John is presenting evidence in the form of a testimony. Now, this is a very clear theme throughout of John, all of John's gospel. He is essentially taking series of people and putting them on the stand as witnesses to God. They are sharing their testimony. We see John's testimony, even in verse 15, if you'll jot down there before. John bore witness, it's in parentheses, about him and cried out, he was of whom I said, he comes after me, but ranks before me. He's going to come after me, but he was before me. He's saying, this Jesus is God. This light is the Messiah. Not only John the Baptist's testimony, but we see testimony from Nicodemus. We see testimony from Jesus himself. We hear the testimony of the Spirit, of the disciples, and at the end of the book, we see the testimony of John. To borrow the legal term here, this is meant to convince you beyond the preponderance of evidence that Jesus is the Christ and that you would you open your heart to him. Um, maybe turn quickly with me. I didn't think I was going to do this, but let's see if I can find it. Oh, there it is. Oh, yeah, I had it marked actually. John 20, 31. If you were to put the gospel of John into an overarching statement, what is it about? What is John trying to do? This verse is quite helpful. It's a thematic statement of John. It says this, 31. But these things, this book, are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. 
John the Baptist's purpose, it was to share Christ. Jesus comes into the world and the light harkens forth and it, only, it not only tells what John the Baptist is going to do, beloved, he tells us what you and I are to do. Anybody ever had the thought before like, I'm in Jesus, I believe, I'm a Christian, why am I still here? Let's just get it on and get it over with. Let's get up to heaven. This verse is not just a model of John's life or a testimony of him. It is a model of ministry for all Christians who have come after him. They saw his personal witness. Read it again. He came as a witness to bear witness that all might believe through him. His testimony never changed and neither should ours. No system of man. No preacher with a new spin on Christianity. No new author. No book. No getting sick of the gospel. Let's move on to other things. We are standing in the courtroom of life and we are to testify. And when you have a line of of witnesses, if you will, in a court hearing, I've had to testify in court before, and the the, um, one side or the other will bring a, a group of witnesses together and they will share essentially the same story or different parts of the same story. It is to, as a mosaic, put against the preponderance of evidence. So many people saw the same thing that would be seen as evidence. We are one Christian in the line of many Christians in our history, as Hebrews 12.1 says, that we are a cloud of witnesses. From Moses to today, the testimony is the same. Jesus is the Christ. And He has come for us all. Some are called to share in whatever way, and that's you. Some are called to preach. Some might say that, well, Beck is a pastor because he has leadership ability or, you know, the gifting to speak in front of other people. No, those things might be helpful gifts to aid in the ministry, but I was not called because I am gifted. I am called because I can testify to a risen Lord in my life. And I will use this pulpit as long as it is given to me or till my breath is rusty and old of the testimony of Christ and nothing else. If you are a young Christian in the room, you may think to yourself, I understand the gospel, let's move on to the next thing. And there are other things, doctrines and truths and practicalities and applications and how we live out the gospel in certain ways in our life. But the Christ that you are serving must be central in every way and it must never change. If you are old in this room and thinking, well, I don't know how much gas in the tank, as it were, I have left. I don't know how much I have to say. Even if you don't have a voice anymore and all you can do is pray. Pray the same testimony again and again. I've been called for the same reason that John was called. And it's that I might testify and others through the power of God may believe through me. Notice verse 7. You'll see this. You just thought I was heretical, but let's watch this. Uh, that all might, verse, end of verse 7, that all might believe through Him. That Him isn't Him meaning God. That Him is referring to John the Baptist. In other words, guys, God loves to work through people. He wants to work through you, and He was working through John 
this means that your witness matters. And you might say, why should I preach the gospel if somebody else can do it for me? Somebody can do it better than me. Somebody's more aware or more understanding or I don't know if I want to offend anybody. These thoughts rage through our mind and they are all lies. If you would, and I, I very rarely do this, but if you would, please, seriously, turn to Romans chapter 10. I want to bring a text to this here. We'll start in verse 13. Little scriptural dose for you here. For any, <clears throat> verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How then are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how can you preach unless you are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The gospel needs to be preached. And it needs to be preached through humans. And it needs to be declared through His Word to other people. I'm not asking you to be gifted. Brothers and sisters, I'm begging you this Christmas season to be faithful. To trust in the Word of God. Because how is your neighbor going to hear unless somebody preaches? Who will ever preach unless somebody is sent? How could anybody believe unless they hear? Aaron's had this great instruction for me over the years. I've heard him say it many, many times before. We referenced this verse, right? That they believe by the, the word of God. That reference there in Romans 10, 17 isn't a reference to the logos. It's a reference to the rhema, the specific word of God, the testimony of God in your life is the way that people might come believe to believe through you. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. The Bible is not the light of the world. It is the light of the church. But the world does not read the Bible. They read Christians. You, Christian, are now the light of the world. Because the very, very power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead might dwell in your mortal body. Never be it that we would hide ourselves under a lampstand or put ourselves under the sheet or stand in front of our neighbor having a conversation and try to diminish our Christianity. Well, maybe I'll just say it next time. There may not be a next time. Who in your life you'd think the Lord has sent your way or you their way because you're the only one that might be able to preach to them? You have a testimony, and that testimony is worth sharing. The baby, like in verse 7, they might come to believe through you. And what would you say? Well, we'd say it like in verse 9. Let's read it now. This is our second point. The light reveals our sinful depravity. The light reveals our sinful depravity. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. Verse number nine, the true light refers back to one through four. In him was the light and the life. This is what entered into the world. It's a clear reference of Jesus. 
It says that this was the light to everyone. Now you might think, wait a minute, everyone's going to be saved? Everyone receives or sees the light? No, that's not true. When Jesus entered the world, he was God incarnate. Listen, the light shone, and what did it shine for the first time in history? You're going to think this is cool in your Bible. You thought this verse was kind of lame? Watch this. The second member of the Godhead is now for the first time revealed. What a present to unwrap. For thousands of years, the Jewish custom has been looking for how Messiah was going to come, how they might be saved. How was this all going to work it out? They, they anticipated it. They prophesied about it. They, you know, prophesied about it. And what happened? Jesus himself comes as a baby. The Trinity is now, at least in part, visible. The light shone and there stood God himself. The true light was shining in front of people eyeball to eyeball and nose to nose, toes in front of toes. Everybody who stood in front of Jesus saw the real deal. And what they do? When Jesus comes into the world, the first trial that he has to deal with is they want to murder him. And they've been trying to figure out how to murder him, or were, his entire life. The prophets had a picture of this wrapped gift of Jesus, but they didn't quite know the real thing. And they anticipated it, and they desired it, and they read about it, and they memorized scriptures about it. And when it stood in front of him, they stiff-armed him. They did not know him. Listen to me. Verse 9 and 10, there is no picture of greater depravity in all the Bible than lies in these verses. That Jesus himself stood before him and they rejected him. Verse 11 says to the Jew, it says he came to his own people, right? They did not receive him. God left perfection and peace. Aaron said this this morning. He left paradise with no need in the world. He wasn't lacking anything. And he comes all the way down into the dust and stench of this world out of an act of love. And we threw it in his face. They said they did not know him. The light shined and no one recognized it. The great theologian Richard Gardner preached on this exact text a few years back, uh, five or six years ago, and I listened to the sermon and I love what he said here. I'm going to quote him now. The light shines and reveals what we truly are. We respond to the light like cockroaches when the light is turned on. When we are exposed, we run. The reason that we think we can see the brightness of Jesus is because it shines against the darkness of this world. Hear this now. But the truth is, the only reason we can see the light of Jesus is when it's cast against the darkness of our own heart. Well done, brother. We love John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that any who might believe in Him would have eternal life. But we forget to just go down a few more verses to 3.19, Right? The light shone, and they hated, they, they denied it because they loved the darkness. That is our state. We sing in Christmas time, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. I don't think so. We like to say those words, but when he's standing in front of you, we have a testimony of a different result all together. 
You cannot call yourself good in any way when the mere author of goodness stands in front of you and you see it as bad. We're not just kind of bad. We don't even have just a little goodness in us if we don't have and accept Christ. The problem was not that God was hidden in the world and it was just really dark. The problem is that we are blind altogether. And I I deal with a lot of young people and people who would say, you know, if I could just hear his voice, I just need to hear him one time. If I could just see one miracle, if he would just save my mom or help my dad, then I know that I would believe. I have a Bible that tells me, no, you wouldn't. If he came down and stood right in front of you, you wouldn't believe. How can we become Christians in such dire circumstances where he has to intervene. Here's a riddle for you. You're in a darkened cave. Back to Aaron's sermon. It's so dark you cannot see anything. And you cry out for someone to turn on the light. And someone says, okay, and click of the flashlight, you hear it, but you still can't see anything. What's the problem? It's not that the batteries were out. It's that you are blind. It doesn't matter if light bursts into the world and reveals everything for us to see. We can't see. So what must we do the light of the world has come in and broken away the darkness we can't see him because we have all forgotten that we are still so spiritually blind that no amount of light will help us unless god sends someone to help our blindness and here's a way to think about it for you that are christians that have received him that that can see i wonder if our time since or that we've been a Christian kind of diminishes our ability to bear witness like John because of the light? Let me, let me just put an application in front of you. I've been thinking through this. I'd like for you this season to consider your gratitude. I wonder at times if like Lazarus, what was he doing like two years after he was raised from the dead? Is he ever thinking like, man, I just wish I would have stayed dead. This job is horrible. <laughs> Blind Bartimaeus, he sees and he follows Jesus and then it's like, man, there's like a lot of ugliness here. I'm just going to go back to it being dark. The guy who's like laid up and uh, he picked up his mat and walk. Now he's got like to get a job and he can't just lay around and have people help him out anymore. There's some burdens in this world. You remember when you became a Christian? It was like the world was new to you. You were dead and now you are saved. You were blind and now you can see. There's this release of of fear and pressure and doubt. There's this rejoicing in the Lord. And then the days and hours start to pile up. And we just kind of fall back into the medium. Have we lost our wonder? Have we lost our gratitude? Have we heard this story so many times that we don't realize how wonderful it is that God intervened? That we were all blind Bartimaeus. The lame. The leper the dead. And when we lose our gratitude, we get presents this year. You guys are going to be so grateful when you unwrap the stupid paper. You're going to be so grateful. And by St. Patrick's Day, that thing is going to be collecting dust in the corner of the closet. And there you are longing for more. A little bored. A little uneasy. Do anybody still have a gratitude for what you got last Christmas? Do you even remember what you got? Last Christmas, the Advent season is designed for you, Christian, to remember, to remember the Lord, to give him thanks again. 
And it isn't that great of a gift unless you realize that you were blind. And now, by the Lord's grace, you can see. It's an opportunity for us to reflect that no matter how hard these days are, it's still better than being in the cave. To our third point. The light reveals our God's character. The light reveals our God's character. John 1, 12 and 13. I'll read it now. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of the will, or nor of the will of man, but of God. Um, there's this old pastor's quote, this wonderful man named Johnny Square used to tell me that in the Bible there's butts, there's little butts, and there's big butts. <laughs> and this is a big butt. The beginning of verse 12, this but is a fulcrum. It's a hinge point by which the whole tenor of this testimony changes. Those who He came to, they did not receive Him, but those who did receive Him believed in His name. To receive is to believe. To believe is to receive. That word receive is actually really powerful. It, it means to accept somebody into your home. To welcome them. And the thing I want you to take away about this is that you can't receive in part. I can't welcome part of you into my home. I either have to accept you all or not at all. And if the same thing is true of the parallel verse, to receive is to believe and to believe is to receive, you cannot believe in part. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. We cannot take Jesus in part. We must receive the whole thing. Because if you do, He gives us the right to become children of God. Implying, of course, that at one point, no man was a child of God. Unless you believe, you can't be, or you receive and believe, you cannot be given the right to be a child of God. We were not of Him. We were of sin before this. There's only two races in the world. The spiritually dead and the reborn. Because in the scan of eternity, what else matters? There is ethnic races that matter. There's cultural differences that are significant. God is glorified by all languages, all tongues, all skin colors, all of these different backgrounds. He's glorified by them all. You know why I know that? Because He made them. But when it boils down to it, there's the dead and the children of God. There's the blind and those who can receive. And he says, if you'll receive him, you earn the right to call him father. This is a thing that the light has revealed that hadn't been before. Now, the Old Testament refers to, in many places, God as father. But it's in the way that we would refer to George Washington as the father of the nation. And that he's the designer and the creator of it. We are not talking about an intimate father-son or father-daughter relationship. We are not talking merely about creation like George Washington. We, friends, are talking about adoption. What a great gift. What a wonderful Christmas present that is. What'd you get this year? I got a whole family. That is the gospel for you and I. How many can receive him? How many can believe? Note in verse 12, all. Your verse might say anyone or everyone. Your, your translation might say that. All who come. God died for all. Not all will accept Him, but He died for all. There is ample room in God's 
family. Now, if you're a studious Bible learner and you're really serious about growing, you have to start asking questions. How can I have verses 10 and 11 where they're going to reject Him and no one sees Him and we're so blind and then have this verse in 12 that says, but any who would receive Him. The question persists, how do we receive Him? And the answer lies in the first two words of verse 14. Or verse 13. You need to be born. Born again, if you will. Now, this is incredible. You guys should break out your pens and start writing this down. John is a master teacher, and he uses this teaching tactic multiple times in his gospel, and I love it. He is going to shape your thinking in verse 13 by first telling you what these things aren't. It's a pattern that I'd seen before, but I was actually encouraged by my friend Matt Scott, who brought it up to me again, that he, he shapes your thinking by putting guardrails in your mind. And when he does so, all the excuses go away. Notice here in verse 13, it says, um, uh, become children of God who were born, verse not, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Not of blood. Your last name, your bloodline, your creed, your royal lineage does not permit you to become a child of God. The will of the flesh. No effort of morality. No, I did more right than I did wrong. No monasticism. No, no high level of studying. No intellect. No believing that you've done all the right things and stayed away from the wrong things. That will not make you a son or a daughter of God. Well, what about the systems of man? Religious sacrifice. Deep study. Religious experiences like this. I go to church. That means I'm a Christian. No, John says that is not how you become a child of God. Well, it's not a system. It's not my flesh. It's not my bloodline. What could it be? See here at the end of verse 13. But of God. King James would say, but the will of God. But by the will of God. Three negatives and a positive. Not of blood, not of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. A scholar, teacher, pastor, preacher, wonderful man named Stephen Lawson said it this way. Um, he'd call it monergistic regeneration. That's the technical term for it. And say, it wasn't of you, brothers and sisters. It wasn't even a joint project. Some of you are going to struggle with that. I'm going to say it again. It wasn't a joint project. This is important doctrine that can be a present for you this Christmas. You would say, I know that Jesus saved me, but I chose Him. Some of you would say, I chose to follow Jesus. Let me ask you a doctrinal question this way. This is going to be kind of tricky. You ready for this? Are you reborn and then you believe? Or do you believe and then you're reborn? The large swath of the Christian community, especially in the Western world, would say to you, well, of course, I believe. And then God gives me this great gift of being reborn. But this verse, along with many others, would tell us in verse 13 and beyond that that is actually the inverse of the case, just to pick one out for the case of time. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. 
To say, I believe, and then I get to receive, is to, you don't, aren't meaning to do this, is to say, I just need a little piece of the glory. To believe first, I did something out of my own volition and will, and then to be reborn might even be to say, I have enough goodness in me to make the good choice to receive Christ. Let me ask you this. What choice did you make to be born? Your answer to that is the same choice you made to be reborn. And it's hard pill to swallow. It's difficult because you do have a decision to be made. But you don't get to make decisions if you're dead. Dead people don't believe nothing. My mama taught me that. And if, I'm, if God resuscitates me into life and I see with my opened eyes out of my blindness and the first thing I see is Jesus, then I'm going to believe. And glory to God in the highest who would pick me out of this whole world and pick you and pick other Christians out of our deadness when we could do nothing. He saved me. That's what the light reveals. Why would Jesus come as a baby and be a light to the world? What's the purpose? Because it reveals his character. Brothers and sisters, your God is a savior. The Bible is a story of trying, God trying to tell us what he is like. Is he mean? Is he angry? Is he, is he an anthill or a guy on the top of an anthill with a magnifying glass and we're the ant? No, he's none of those things. He says he is a savior. And that we would choose him. I want you to be reminded of John the Baptist's response, maybe to help you with this. Just a few chapters later, John the Baptist's disciples come to him and they say, hey, John, Jesus is on the other side of the river. He's baptizing people. I think we're going to have to close up shop. Nobody's coming over here anymore. And what is John's response? He must increase and I must decrease. When I look at my salvation or my salvation from me up to God, I want to have a part in it. But if I consider it from God down to us, the greater glory is to say, I didn't do anything. And my loving God saved me. This passage tells us that He's a Savior. The light has shown and revealed what ministry is, how to respond to what His character is like, and what to do with Him. And so now I ask, what will you do with Him? If you're a Christian, rejoice all the more. Give thanks this season. You live in a time in history when the wonderful truth that we just explained has all been unwrapped. The light of Christ has been revealed to you and you get to see it and you get to meditate on it and you get to think about it and you get to read about it and you get to um, meditate again and again and again on it this Christmas season. That is a present that was not given at other times in history. But if you are not a Christian, let me stand here in front of the Witness stand of the world and say, hear my witness. I was dead and now I'm not. I was blind and now I can see and I know for a fact what happened to me. It was Jesus who came and saved my soul. I just wanted you to know. The beginning of my pastoral ministry, whatever that is, I feel like I've been kind of doing the same thing. I'd like to start with a verse that brought about the naming of this church. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you should heed these words 
as a witness. John 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed, or the word there is crossed over, from death to life. You're a guest here today. I'm so happy that you're here, but you have been forced to a decision with this present. I'm offering you something, and you get a choice. You can crown Him or crucify Him. You can nail Him, or you can hail Him. You can receive this gift, or you can shove it into the closet. But I pray that you receive it. What a wonderful Christmas gift He is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your goodness in this season. You have come as a light to the world and a blessing to all of us. We ask you today to administer to our hearts beyond just the preaching of this word, beyond just the singing of these songs, that we would reflect and remember you this season as you came into this world as the greatest gift of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.